For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Hey guys, I'm Monica Crowley, and this is the Monica Crowley Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me here today as we begin to close out another week in Biden's America, which we have survived, although barely. This is your go-to for hot liberty, a safe space for all of us thought criminals, independent thinkers, and yes, happy warriors. Don't forget to check me out on social media. On Instagram, I'm at Monica Crowley underscore. And on Twitter and True Social, I'm at Monica Crowley. Also by email, I can be reached at Monica Crowley podcast at gmail.com. So send me a note and let me know what's on your mind. All right, in the days and weeks ahead, uh, we've got big guests lined up. Next week, we're going to talk to Senator Rand Paul about his new book called Deception, about the great COVID cover-up. God knows what they have planned for next year. Um, it is a presidential election year. Donald Trump is tied with Biden or leading him, which means the crisis plan by the left is going to have to be triggered in 2020. That involved an unprecedented virus to shut down the global economy. That's how desperate they were to stop Donald Trump and the America First agenda and get their globalist agenda back on track. Uh, so Lord knows what they have planned for next year. But we can't think about and, and anticipate and deal with what they might have planned if it involves another virus or pathogen of some kind until we know the truth about what happened last time. And Senator Rand Paul has written a whole book about it. He has been on top of Fauci and Burks uh, and the others from the very beginning. All of the fraud, all of the lies, all of the crimes. He is going to join us here next week. Also next week, we're going to be joined by my friend, broadcasting legend, Bill O'Reilly. He is going to be here with us as well. Also, in the days and weeks ahead, uh, Senator Ted Cruz is going to be here, Sean Spicer, Natasha Owens, who's an unbelievable country and Christian artist. She's just so good. She did the Trump One song, which I play constantly. Um, she's going to be here. And our good friend Kelsey Grammer with the reboot of Frasier which is streaming now, we are going to talk to him and we have other big names uh, lined up as well. So you're not going to want to miss a second of this show. Uh, coming up later here today, my friend Brett Baer of Fox News, he is going to join us with the latest from Capitol Hill and the White House, plus his brand new book on George Washington and saving the Constitution. Brett Bear coming up here in just a couple of minutes. First, though, the Monica memo. The entire U.S. government is rotten from top to bottom. Just completely rotten with corruption. And corruption actually now feels like it's a little too soft of a word. Um, this is straight up evil. So maybe we call it uh, corruption and evil. Corruption is like... 
It's a word to describe like Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey getting a car and a couple hundred thousand dollars and some gold bars for helping, you know, the Egyptian government and not registering under Farah. That's like that's like corruption, right? That's like garden variety, garden state corruption. Corruption, when we hear that word, that's the kind of thing we think about right? Like, well, maybe selling a little access, maybe getting a Mercedes out of it. You know, politicians have been doing this since time immemorial. That's what we think about when we use the word corruption. It is a strong word, but I have this sense that it's not strong enough for what we are dealing with coming out of Washington, but also this, this dark evil that is spread throughout our country. Yes, in the government, but also throughout all of our institutions, through big tech, through our culture. It's all just completely shot through with evil. This corruption, this evil runs so deep that I'm now convinced that most, if not all of our institutions, just need to be raised to the ground I just don't think that reform is going to cut it. Reform isn't enough. Reform is, it, you know, you tinker at the margins, you put in some new rules or regulations, you pass a few extra laws. I don't think reform is enough here. The corruption, the evil just runs too deep. We've got three big examples of that today, and I want to get into each and every one, and I'll give you I'll give you my final thoughts here on the speaker's race at the end of this. But I did want to deal with the corruption and the evil first. Because in the last like 24 hours, we've got we've got three massive examples of this. Okay, so the first one is this absolutely tragic, horrific mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine, which happened uh, late last night. We've got, as of this time, 22 people dead, over 60 people injured. Uh, This person of interest, a man named Robert Card, as of this morning, he was still on the run. And so they have large sections of Maine near and around Lewiston, either under shelter in place uh, restrictions or caution restrictions. But apparently this guy had a car that he used to get to these two locations, including a bowling alley at a bar. Um, And then he switched out the cars like a bank robber does and sophisticated criminals do. So they don't know. Uh, As far as this morning, they do not know where he is. He could have crossed the border into Canada. He could be, God knows where, he could be in Mexico by now. We we just don't know. Um, So they are doing this massive nationwide manhunt for him. I'm sure they're dealing with the Canadians because Maine is so close to that border. So we will keep a close eye on this. But the details that we have so far about this person of interest, Mr. Card, is that he was, quote, known to law enforcement. Most of them are. Are they not? Most of them are. He was known to law enforcement. He was previously committed to a mental health facility. He was in a mental institution and had just been released, I think, like two weeks prior to this mass shooting. As a result of being in the mental institution, he was prohibited from owning firearms. So the laws were all very clear, and yet somehow he got around that. These people who commit 
these crimes, and they are separate and distinct from like known Islamic terrorists, which those motivations are completely different. But just consider this list of recent mass shootings, okay? The Uvalde, Texas shooter, mentally ill. The El Paso shooter, mentally ill. The Parkland shooter, mentally ill. This Lewiston, Maine shooter, mentally ill. The Nashville shooter, mentally ill. The Fort Hood shooter, mentally ill. The Sandy Hook school shooter, mentally ill. The Virginia Tech school shooter, mentally ill. So you have all of these mentally ill individuals somehow gaining access to guns, even though we have a plethora of laws to prevent it. These mentally ill people getting access to guns and then shooting up places and killing scores of innocent people and ruining countless lives in the process. The response to this from the left is, oh, America has a gun problem. We need to restrict legal gun ownership because of all these school shootings. The problem is the guns, not the mentally ill individuals. So the tyrants on the left are like, oh, we have to restrict guns. This is all about gun control. When it's not, it is a mental health issue that the United States once had a grip on when we had mental institutions and had the ability to commit people to the institutions so that these kinds of tragedies, these kinds of horrific crimes cannot be committed. It is not about the guns. It is about mental health. And in my view, I think we need to bring back mental institutions. Oh, Monica, that's so cruel. It's so unkind. No, you know what's cruel and unkind? Seeing 22 people dead in Lewiston, Maine, Innocent people who are going about their days, their businesses, trying to bowl with their families, have a drink in a bar after a hard day's work. That's what's tragic and, and, and unkind and cruel. We need to bring back mental institutions. And I know it's politically incorrect, but you know what? These tragedies are going on and on and on, and countless people continue to lose their lives because the left keeps couching it as a gun problem when it's not. It's a mental illness problem. Not to mention the role of big pharma, pharmaceuticals, just loading people up with drugs who don't necessarily need the drugs, and then that crosses over into mental illness. We have a serious problem in this country. But it's not about the guns. The guns are not the issue. Mental health is. It's time we brought back mental institutions. I think I saw Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene earlier today uh, tweet something like that. And, you know, if we can have people in power who are willing to embrace this and make the case for it, then good. Good. Meanwhile, to the corruption point, yes, the the left's constant argument for gun control when guns are not the issue is a point of evil and a point of corruption. But the other part of this equation is that this person of interest, Robert Card, uh, he said voices in his head were telling him to shoot up military bases 
So it looks like he had a form of schizophrenia or something else. He said the voices in his head told him, so law enforcement was aware, mental health professionals were aware that he was saying that he had voices in his head telling him to shoot up military bases, and he was still released from this mental health facility. He was released about two weeks ago, I think, from this mental institution, Meanwhile, the average Americans who raise questions about the veracity of the 2020 presidential election, who alighted on Washington, D.C. to make their voices heard, that they believed that there was fraud and they wanted to question that on January 6, 2021. Well, like the guy with the, uh, the horns on his head and the guy carrying Pelosi's podium out the door, well, they were held in pretrial detention and thrown in prison. They were the ones hunted down by our corrupt FBI in the name of fighting domestic terrorism. That's where the corruption lies. While the FBI was busy raiding a former president over nothing and was also busy infiltrating PTO meetings and church groups and MAGA rallies and raiding the homes of January 6 grandmas from Indiana... You have people like this person of interest, Robert Card, known to law enforcement, running around saying he's going to shoot up military bases, and the FBI and law enforcement let him go. Too focused on Catholics and parents at school board meetings, MAGA rallies, you're the domestic terrorist, but the actual domestic terrorists get away with it all. That's where we are in America. That is the depth of the corruption, and that is the depth of the evil. That's example number one over the last 24 hours. Example number two, speaking of the January 6th defendants, again, many of whom nonviolent, still thrown in pretrial detention, uh, convicted unfairly, and slapped with multi-year prison sentences. Well, in view of that, what happened to uh, the communist congressman from New York, Jamal Bowman? He pulled a fire alarm during that late September congressional session when Republicans sought to initiate a vote on a spending measure to avoid a government shutdown. Jamal Bowman and the Democrats were trying to delay that. So Bowman pulled the fire alarm and in doing so, instigated an evacuation of the Capitol and obstructed an official proceeding, which is what many of the nonviolent January 6th defendants were charged with, parading at the Capitol, obstructing an official uh, proceeding. They were slapped with, again, prison time. So Jamal Bowman pulls the fire alarm and obstructs an official proceeding. And what does he get? Well, he does get criminally charged, but he gets hit with a misdemeanor. One misdemeanor count of falsely pulling a fire alarm. Remember, he claimed that it was a mistake. Well, the Washington, D.C. police, Capitol Police said, "Uh, not so fast. But they realized, you know, he's a communist He's a Democrat. He's a person of color. So we can't do to them what they've done to the January 6th defendants, but they still have to hit him with something to look good. So uh, they hit him with this one little slap on the wrist. Uh, This kind of charge carries a maximum penalty of six months in prison. Will he spend six months in jail? 
Or will he just get off with this little slap on the wrist and paying a $1,000 fine? Guys, that is a rhetorical question because, of course, he's just going to pay the grand uh, in the fine and walk away. No questions asked. While the January 6th grandmas, again, are rotting in prison. So that's example number two. Example number three, which is perhaps the biggest of them all, at the top of all of this evil and corruption is, of course, Joe Biden and his criminal family. Biden is the worst president we've ever had by far. He's also the most corrupt president we've ever had by far. And now we get this news. Listen to this from the New York Post. More than 40 confidential sources provided, quote, criminal information related to the Biden family to the FBI, which the Justice Department then tried to discredit as, quote, foreign disinformation. This according to Senator Chuck Grassley, who has been investigating the Biden crime family and the DOJ and FBI's corruption and evil. The confidential human sources managed by several different FBI field offices supplied the FBI with details of potential crimes by Hunter, James, and Joe Biden dating back to his time as vice president. According to a letter that was sent by Grassley to FBI Director Christopher Wray and Attorney General Merrick Garland yesterday, here's what they wrote, quote, This letter is based on years of investigation, including the provision of information, records, and allegations from multiple Justice Department whistleblowers that indicate there is and has been an effort among certain Justice Department and FBI officials to improperly delay and stop full and complete investigative activity into the Biden family. Grassley continues, quote, an essential question that must be answered is this. Did the FBI investigate the information or shut it down? Indeed, if those sources were improperly shut down, it wouldn't be out of the ordinary for the FBI. Based on the information provided to my office over a period of years, years, guys, by multiple credible whistleblowers, There appears to be an effort within the Justice Department and FBI to shut down investigative activity related to the Biden family. Such decisions point to significant political bias infecting the decision-making of not only the Attorney General and FBI Director, but also line agents and prosecutors. Exactly. Guys, we have heard this for so long, right? That the corruption is just at the top. It's with Chris Ray. It was with Bob Mueller. Um, it was with these FBI directors um, who came and went, and it was them and maybe their top lieutenants, and that was it. But the rank and file and the prosecutors, once it went into the legal system, all of this was above board. So many people devoted to the rule of law. Well, yes, there are people devoted to the rule of law in these institutions, but they're the ones who are getting railroaded. 
and they're afraid for their careers, they're afraid for their livelihoods, their paychecks. So when they know the people at the top and then people all around them as well are towing this very corrupt evil line of protecting evildoers, protecting criminals who happen to be politically corrected or who happen to be the vice president of the United States, well, they're not going to stick their heads out. They're not going to, they're not going to start talking and saying, gee, gosh, golly, we have mountains of evidence of corruption, influence peddling by Joe Biden while he's vice president. You're going to do that. You should do that. But these people are human beings. They have families to feed. They're going to do that when everybody around them from top to, to lower underneath them are all on board with this corruption. Mm. That is a tough call. We do have some brave whistleblowers, and God bless them. But these people who have come forward at the IRS and the DOJ and the FBI, all of these institutions have tried to ruin their lives, suspended them without pay, demoted them, all totally illegal stuff under our whistleblower laws. If you are a whistleblower and you have evidence of wrongdoing, you are supposed to be protected. Grassley is a huge champion of whistleblowers, and he's trying his best to protect these people. But you take your life and your career in your hands when you do it. So it's not just the people at the top, it's people throughout these institutions that then have a chilling effect on truth tellers and people who are there to actually do their jobs honestly. Grassley uh, also noted in his letter that these whistleblower allegations claim that the FBI received information about Hunter's criminal, financial, and related activity in 2020. Guess what that was? Oh, that was a presidential election year with Joe Biden running as a Democrat. But Grassley said, quote, to ultimately shut it down based on false assertions that it was subject to foreign disinformation. Remember the laptop where they all lie that it was Russian disinformation? This is the lie. This is what Grassley is exposing. He also goes on to say that there was a disinformation assessment created by FBI supervisory intelligence analyst by Brian Auten, and Grassley explains that the report was used by, quote, an FBI headquarters team to improperly discredit negative Hunter Biden information as disinformation and caused investigative activity to cease. So in other words, the FBI was creating dummy assessments about Russian disinformation to stop these investigations. Gressley goes on to say the FBI HQ in Washington and the FBI Baltimore element, so there were a bunch of different FBI field offices, including Baltimore and Pittsburgh, Washington, D.C., they were all over this. They were all over the Biden crime family, finding all kinds of crimes, and all of these investigations were closed after pressure from these uh, different field offices. Bribery allegations against the Bidens. There's one of these FBI forms that says, with regard to the Ukrainians, uh, quote, it costs $5 million to pay one Biden and $5 million to another Biden. There are all kinds of these FBI formal forms called FD-1023s detailing all kinds of bribery allegations, guys. And it was all shut down 
by the FBI, even though they had 40 confidential human sources running around with all kinds of evidence here about this deep, deep corruption and evil on the part of the sitting vice president. This is not Joe Biden out of office. This is the sitting vice president of the United States selling his office to the highest bidder. And it wasn't a coincidence that the highest bidders were America's worst enemies like China and deeply corrupt regimes like Ukraine, which the Obama-Biden administration helped to overthrow a democratically elected government in Ukraine helped to do that in, what was it, 2014? Why? Because they wanted fertile ground for corruption. They wanted fertile ground for money laundering. They wanted a government in there that they could control. Do you see the extent of the evil? So many of these FBI assessments came in the summer and fall of 2020, again, just a couple of months before the presidential election. Biden bribery allegations not allowed to be investigated and in fact stopped stone cold in their tracks by the FBI and the DOJ. Grassley has demanded a response to his letter from the FBI and DOJ by November 17th. Um, I raise all of these examples because everything from the FBI, DOJ, local law enforcement, not paying attention to actual domestic terrorists, Jamal Bowman walking while normal Americans get railroaded uh, for far less. And then, of course, sitting atop all of it is the current president of the United States, the most corrupt and probably evil president we have ever had. It, it is all of a piece, guys. It's all of a piece. The corruption and evil runs so deep in this country. It's in every direction. And that's why we need extremely strong leadership, fearless leadership to try to turn this around. This is going to be a huge project. And this is why you need the strength of someone like Donald Trump. This is why he is leading his nearest Republican competitors by 30, 40, 50 plus points, because we all know we need strength. We need strength here at home to fix this kind of corruption, which is going to take a really brave person. The empire always strikes back. And we need a strong hand abroad as well, because the world is aflame thanks to Biden's incredible weakness and deliberate torpedoing of American strength and power. So this is why Donald Trump is leading by so much and this primary is over. And when you look at some of the polls against Biden, he's either running even with Biden, which is beyond my comprehension, or he's leading Biden by a couple of points. Americans know their survival is at stake and the survival of the country as a free nation is at stake. Well, we took one important step uh, toward that yesterday by actually getting a speaker. This was a huge victory, guys, for America First and a big defeat for the swamp. The swamp tried to foist 
a uni party nightmare on us. Congressman Tom Emmer, who has connections to George Soros and didn't meet a Ukraine funding bill he didn't like. Tom Emmer is the swamp and very closely aligned with the former speaker, Kevin McCarthy. So Matt Gates, who has been totally vilified, but he's been absolutely right about all of this. Um, yesterday on Bannon's war room, he exposed how Kevin McCarthy was the one who was torpedoing all of the prospective candidates from Steve Scalise to Jim Jordan, including Tom Emmer, his good friend. McCarthy was full of it the whole time because he was trying to maneuver himself back in. So uh, Emmer is the swamp, of course, he is the system, McCarthy is the system. And as all of this was unfolding, we the people were like, oh, hell no. Hell no. We did not get rid of Kevin McCarthy to have someone worse. Hell no. So thanks to heroes like Matt Gates, who again has been completely uh, taken apart because he put himself on the line to disrupt the corrupt system on his own side, and also big thanks to President Trump, who at exactly the right minute sent out a true social post taking an absolute blowtorch to Emmer, <laughs> at which point Emmer said to himself, okay, if I don't have Trump, I don't have this. Uh, President Trump pulled the trigger at exactly the right time. Emmer stepped out. And all of us, too, by the way, MAGA, America Firsters, who all of us who called Congress and let them know how we felt and what we demanded out of a speaker. We were able to outmaneuver the swamp and actually not just claim McCarthy's scalp, but get a real MAGA win. The new speaker is Mike Johnson. He is America First and MAGA. He's from the state of Louisiana. He's served in Congress since 2017, so he's relatively new. He's not deeply steeped in the corruption of the swamp, at least not yet. Uh, his voting record is mostly solid. He is an ally of the House Freedom Caucus, and his mentor is none other than Jim Jordan. He called to arrest then-Speaker Nancy Pelosi, after she tore up the State of the Union behind uh, President Trump's back, remember that? He called for her to be arrested for that because it was an unofficial document. But she, like Jamal Bowman, just skated on that. If that had been a Republican doing that, you know that they would have gone full force with an indictment and a conviction in Washington, D.C., Mike Johnson was also instrumental in getting the Texas amicus brief going in 2020 and voted against certifying the fraudulent 2020 election. He has not voted in favor of any more funding for Ukraine after the initial funding bill. He has an F rating from the Republicans for Ukraine caucus. I didn't even know there was one of those, but yeah. Uh, he supported Trump's ban on terror-prone nations. That was, remember, the Islamic travel ban, which was perfect. And we're going to find out how perfect that was pretty soon, I'm afraid. Uh, he served as a member of Trump's legal defense team during both the bogus uh, Senate impeachment trials in 2019 and 2020. He's very conservative on social issues, and he is personal friends with Justice Amy Coney Barrett. He's a great leader who also seems very calm, very steady, 
very put together and organized, which is what we need. Uh, And he's also a man of faith. The very first thing he did the night before yesterday's uh, vote when he was the speaker designate was call the Republican caucus together. He didn't run out to the sticks. He didn't run out to the media. He called everybody together to pray. That is exactly what we need in this country at exactly this moment I want you to listen to some of what he had to say after being sworn in as speaker. He said, we're here to help all Americans. Listen. We're going to dispense with all the usual ceremonies and celebrations that traditionally follow a new speakership because we have no time for either one. The American people's business is too urgent in this moment. The hour is late. The crisis is great. In America, we hear you. And we are reporting again, as I said in there, to our duty stations. Well, there he is. And, uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, Our friend Jack Posobiec and some others have put up uh, past tweets, past clips of him, like after the George Floyd uh, situation where he said, you know, this was clearly a murder and et cetera, et cetera, sort of uh, going down with the media narrative in the immediate days after uh, George Floyd's death. So, you know, there are some who are going to stay on top of him, and we certainly will as well, because, and I hope he has learned his lesson since then um, about the fake media narratives and the depth of the evil and corruption we've all been talking about. He seems very smart. I like him so far. I'm hopeful that he can bring this country back. But remember, Since the Republicans changed the rules on the motion to vacate, all it takes is one member to pull a trigger to get a move for a vote to remove. So if he becomes susceptible to the swamp, and you know they are rubbing up all over him, they're all over him. All of these swamp creatures, lobbyists, they're crawling over this guy right now. So pray for his strength. Pray that he can do this job and do it with great integrity, as hopefully as a man of faith, he will. But he's also a human being susceptible to all kinds of forces, as we all are. So pray for his strength and his steady hand and that he remains America first and governs that way. And if he doesn't, well, you know what? We'll be all over it, too. Um. Having, not having a speaker those last couple of weeks saved us a lot of money because they were not spending, and also they were not spending on Ukraine, which made former Speaker Nancy Pelosi very upset. Listen. But the, the, um, uh, there may be some, a few votes in our caucus who may not support the package, but I think by and large, it will be overwhelmingly supported. We just have to get a speaker on the Republican side. They won. They've got the confidence of the American people. Now they should show they're worthy of that confidence by at least electing a leader, a speaker, so that we can conduct the business of Congress. And that includes coming forth with this package and then keeping government open after that. But to your point, I think there may be a few votes from against, and some of the, those votes have been vocal, but overwhelmingly there will be support for it. Well, yes, you're the right. the Democratic that- side. The uni party is seething. 
They are seething. This is all about government spending and in particular spending for Ukraine, not because they're in love with Zelensky, although they might be, but because it is a massive money laundering operation for them. And they do not want their corrupt gravy train to dry up. So again, the forces of corruption and evil are very strong. And we hope and pray that Speaker Mike Johnson will have the strength and the conviction and the integrity to withstand these pressures. All right, let's hit a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk to Fox News' Brett Baer about what's going on in Washington, as well as uh, his new book, To Rescue the Constitution, all about George Washington, one of my great heroes. That's coming up straight ahead. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Well, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome my friend, Brett Baer. Brett is, of course, the chief political anchor for Fox News and the anchor and executive editor of Special Report, which you can see every night on Fox News at 6 p.m. Eastern. He's also a best-selling author of several very important histories, including To Rescue the Republic and Three Days at the Brink. His latest is another absolutely fascinating look at our founding, and it's called To Rescue the Constitution. It's available now wherever you get your books. It is a great read and makes a great gift. Brett, welcome. Hey, Monica. Hey, it's so good to have you here, and congratulations on yet another masterful work. Thank you. Excited to be bouncing around and um, and happy to be here. It's in, it's kind of interesting to do a book launch in the middle of a lot of things going on, not only around the world but in the U.S., but um but it's still been a good ride. Started off at number four, so it's good. Congratulations. Yeah, I saw it on that New York Times list. Uh, well done. Well done, my friend. And I do want to get into it because it is so fascinating. But before we do, I have to ask you about, you mentioned all of the drama going on. There's not a day where we don't have drama in some direction. Let's talk a little bit about the dramatic process of getting a new speaker, which we now have in Mike Johnson. What do you think we can expect to see next uh, from Capitol Hill in terms of the government funding process and the investigations into the Bidens, government weaponization, and more? Yeah, I think that this has been, you know, a a process that obviously everybody was slogging through and really didn't love. Uh, many people were embarrassed by it, and they thought that uh, this had to come to an end. And that's how you get to Mike Johnson. If you think about it, it's 22 days after Kevin McCarthy is vacated from the speakership. And then you go through Jim Jordan or Steve Scalise, Jim Jordan, Tom Emmers, and then get to Mike Johnson to the point where Mike Johnson, his wife couldn't even get a plane flight up uh, from Louisiana in time because it all came together so quickly. I think that uh, the next thing is to figure out how to 
make sure that, you know, they go through things methodically. His speech was very strong about um, trying to handle the leadership from a bottom up situation and not a top down. It sounds great, though, until you get jammed with funding a government in 22 days from now. And I think that uh, the vacate order that allows one lawmaker to step in and say this isn't working uh, may be changed. And we'll see if that's uh, one of the rules changes that Speaker Johnson pushes for early on. Yeah, that will be interesting, whether or not the Republicans want to go along with that and give him a little bit more breathing room than they gave to McCarthy. And he knows he's got to deliver. But, man, you know, nobody wanted that job. That job, usually yeah. politicians are craving ever more power. And yet when somebody holds up the speakership, they all run away. <laughs> nobody, right, exactly. Nobody wants to be speaker. It's just a, a massive herding cats uh, endeavor. And it's just so, so difficult to do, especially do when you have serious splits in your own party, as well as the other party that's completely opposed to everything you want to do. Yeah, that's right. I do think that the process, because it was so exhausting, uh, because it was so public, we'll give him a little breathing room, even with that rule in place, because people will say, okay, we've got to just get through some of this stuff. I, I think that after 22 days, there was a lot of focus on we're not legislating, and they need to. Um, that said, you know, there's some sticky situations. You've got the president's $106 billion supplemental that's going to come for funding for Israel, for funding for Ukraine, which is controversial, for funding for the southern border, and for funding for Taiwan. So that is going to be front and center uh, as you're trying to get all these appropriations bills done. You know, it seems like all of the action is on the House side, and we understand why. But the Senate also plays an important role, but the Senate has seemed relatively dormant by comparison, are we going to see any action coming out of that body? I think so. I think they're going to try to get these uh, bills passed one by one. Um, and it's, it is a slow process. And, uh, you know, the House has, has been the driver of this. Uh, now that the House is back in action, I think you'll see uh, much more happening on Capitol Hill. And of course, next year, we've got a presidential election year which it, I, I, to me, Brett, it looks like this is probably going to be the most unpredictable. We've had a couple of unpredictable presidential election cycles over the last couple of, of, of terms. But next year, we're just braced for what we can't anticipate. You think about 2016, you think about 2020 with COVID and Black Lives Matter and, and all of this upheaval and chaos. Is there anything that you are particularly braced for as you anticipate next year? I'm braced for the uncertainty. I think that there is a uh, yeah. a real sense, Monica, that that a lot of things could change. That there could be many different shoes to drop uh, that change even who the leaders are. Uh, I think it's possible, but. You know, we don't know uh, how this is all going to shape up. I think clearly on the Republican side, former President Trump is leading exponentially in every poll that you look at. Uh, I do think that the other candidates think that the early states are going to change the dynamics. We'll see. But right now, the polls don't show that. 
On the Democratic side, I'm not sure Democrats believe that President Biden is going to be the nominee at the end. I mean, every Democrat that I talk to says there's you know, the possibility that somehow something's going to happen and changes that dynamic. But how it happens and what it looks like, that's, I don't know. And so I mm. think uh, un- uncertainty will be the card. You, that is certainly true. And you could be covering two incredibly important, fascinating uh, conventions next year. <laughs> I mean, yes. July with the Republicans and then August with the Democrats. And it, it could be quite a scramble. And you could be talking about particularly a Democrat nominee that nobody has thought of before, whether it, that's Mrs. Obama, whether it's Governor Newsom, whether it's uh, Kamala Harris, nobody or, or somebody completely unthought of at this point somebody coming out of the blue and nobody really knows so it's great for our business brett that is for sure um all right let's turn to to rescue the constitution your newest book which focuses on the earliest days of this uh, republic which were a bit of a hot mess and i guess some things never change brett right so we are uh, coming out of the revolutionary war in this book and just as a first question, tell me about what it was about this specific period of time that intrigued you. Yeah. So this actually, Monica, is the fifth of a presidential series of books that I've done. I did Dwight D. Eisenhower, Ronald Reagan, FDR, and that was kind of the Cold War middle end and then went back to the beginning. Then I did, as you mentioned, Ulysses S. Grant, and that was 1876, when the country was going to fall back into a second civil war and President Grant held the country together. So basically, these looks at a moment in time that history may have overlooked or not talked about a lot in the history books. And this one is, as you mentioned, right after the Revolutionary War, the British are defeated. The country is largely held together with what's called the Articles of Confederation, but it's not working. The states are fighting each other. There's a lot of turmoil. Uh, Tax collectors uh, are being bombarded. There's rebellions happening to the point where the chaos is is so high that people are saying, forget it. Let's just go back to British rule. This is not worth it. Um, And it is that moment, May of 1787, that the Constitutional Convention is called. And they get delegates from all the different states Uh, And the person who's tapped uh, to lead this is the person who led revolutionary forces, George Washington. So in that time, hammering this out in this room, Independence Hall in in Philadelphia, uh, is the essence of who we are. The Constitution is hammered out there in those four months. Um, Originally, they went in to, to tweak the Articles of Confederation, but George Washington says, I'm only doing this if you pull it up root and branch and we start over. And that ability to get through the dissent and all the back and forth and all the arguments is the heart of this book. But really, it's about how we really wouldn't have a country had it not been for George Washington. I am so fascinated, uh, Brett, by the so-called genius clusters throughout history, groupings of unique pathbreaking geniuses that all seem to be on the scene at relatively the same time, like uh, Greece's golden age of philosophers or the artists of the Italian Renaissance or the great composers of the 18th century. And of course, 
probably the greatest of them all, the founding fathers. And as you mentioned, you, you focus in such vivid detail on George Washington in this book, saying that he rescued this nation not once, not twice, but three times. Tell us about that. Well, the first time is when he commands the forces for the Revolutionary War, which, you know, was a kind of a ragtag bunch. Uh, it was not a really trained, effective force. It was not well funded. Uh, they didn't have food at times. Um, it was their uniforms were tattered. Uh, they had shoes that were falling off. And in Valley Forge, uh, they had bloody feet in the snow. But in in all of that, he instills in them this inspiring message of liberty and says that basically they can do it, figures out a way to get them shelter, to get them trained, and trains this force to be to believe in itself that it can take on the British, which had kind of been kicking back uh, at that point in the war. They eventually win, obviously. That's the first rescue. The second rescue is, is the handling of the Constitutional Convention that is disparate voices, dissident voices that are arguing about big issues, federalism versus states' rights, what representation is going to look like for big states and small states, uh, the stuff that we even deal with today. But getting people together across the finish line and then ratifying that is the rescue of that second one. And then the third one, obviously, is he's the first American president, and no one is writing him a note in the Oval Office desk telling him how to do it. Nobody's passing him the torch. He is the torch and he makes the executive what it is. So those are the three times he kind of rescues the constitution and sets our government to what it is today. It's just an incredible story. When you think about this singular figure, and of course, the genius cluster of the founding fathers around him, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, I mean, they, they were all extraordinary in their own right. But what comes across in this book is the singular nature of George Washington and what a critical figure he was in terms of, yes, his military ability, but also his temperance, his internal constitution. I mean, he was just temperamentally the exact right person for this moment. That really comes that, across. And what also comes across, Brett, is the fact that at every point in time where the country was hanging by a thread, he really just wanted to retire to his estate in Mount Vernon and relax. He just wanted to like Netflix and chill. Right. And yet, <laughs> right. and yet, like like in The Godfather, they dragged him back in. Dragged right. Back and he in. realized that he, you know, needed to make another valuable contribution. Yeah. Every time he was tapped, he did he did serve. But you're right, Monica. And that is a current theme, a recurrent theme, is that he wanted to go back to Mount Vernon and be with Martha, um, the love of his life. Uh, he wanted to be with her two children who he adopted and to farm. And that's really what his his focus was. But each time he was asked to serve, he did serve. And each time he went into those jobs saying, listen, I may not be the right person for this job. You know, I may not be the best in this position. I may not be the guy that you're looking for. But each time it was the guy that everyone was looking for. He was not the elite scholar that Thomas Jefferson was. He was not the intellectual that John Adams was. He didn't have the analytical rigor that James Madison did. He was not the backslapping gravitas and genius of Ben Franklin. And he definitely wasn't the fiery speaker of Alexander Hamilton. He was this 
somber, thoughtful presence, often was quiet, but he was a unifying figure that had gravitas in every room. He had this ability to bring people together uh, and to work behind the scenes to get them to work out their differences. He commanded such tremendous respect and and that that just the his presence and sense of being i think conveyed authority and so when he entered the room and he spoke and it, he was a man of few words but when he spoke they all listened and generally they they took his counsel so in so many ways he really was the indispensable man what Brett, what after researching him what do you think his most valuable contribution as the first president was because I always thought, and, and maybe you agree, maybe you don't, but I always thought his greatest contribution was leaving, yes. showing that you know there should be restraints on presidential power, or at least a time limit so that the country would not fall back into monarchy or another form of tyranny that could lead to abuses of power against the people. Yeah, 100%. I mean, first of all, he was, he was very practical, but his biggest uh, gift to the country was that he left when he did. You know, there was no prescribed term limits uh, for the executive and everyone thought this is the guy, he's just gonna stay in this. And uh, he said for the good of the country, he was going to set up this peaceful transfer of power. And there's, you know, this great story as John Adams is being inaugurated, uh, they finish and they're walking through the door and. Adams motions for Washington to go first. And Washington says, no, you're the president now. You go first. And um, there is this sense, you know, it's not like he's godlike, but it is that he has this ability uh, to know, you know, where where the right thing is for the good of the country. And I think that that's what I take away from George Washington is that he didn't serve, he put the country first in pretty much every decision that you look at. Um, and, and I think that we could learn from that and we could learn from his ability to get people together on common ground. Man, could we use that today? And I know you do do a common ground segment on special report, which is a really important uh, thing that you do on that. Um, it, it, for those of us who have seen Hamilton, the musical, there is yeah. a great <laughs> there's a great line by King George when he finds out that Washington, after two terms, eight years, is voluntarily stepping aside when he was he was just appealed to by so many people, including his founding father colleagues, to stay in because he was such an indispensable force in holding the country together. They begged him to stay, and he said, "No, I'm out of here <laughs> this time for real." And there's a line in the musical Hamilton where King George says, that's something I didn't know you could do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a exactly. great line. And I think that kind of precedent that he set for presidencies going forward is so important. Was he available as a resource to number two, John Adams, and number three, Thomas Jefferson? He was. In fact, they tapped him a couple of times for different things. Uh, and... It's, you know, it's interesting His he goes back to Mount Vernon and uh, tries to get the farm back on track, you know, was losing money as he was away. Um, and he then is still active and uh, asked to be an advisor, even late in the game. Those are things that uh, 
that people don't know. You know, the, the process here, Monica, is that these nuggets are in our national archives at Mount Vernon, uh, other places, and they just have to be kind of unearthed. They're there. Um, but when you find these things, and this process for us has been to to locate them and then stitch them together like a quilt and put the reader in the room so that there's this feeling that you have a real sense of the people involved and what's happening there. Uh, but it's all noted in history exactly as it as it transpired. So uh, hopefully it's it's a very readable experience that you know people get a sense of who George Washington is, who Martha Washington is, and who these other founding fathers are at the beginning of our country. When we think about the lessons for today in the current state of our government, um, you know, the founders gifted us this incredible experiment in self-government. And I think about Benjamin Franklin's famous uh, reply to a woman who on the steps of the Constitutional Convention said, what kind of government did you give us, sir? And he said, a republic, if you can keep it. And I think a lot of people, Brett, believe that the country is once again hanging by a thread. What do, you, what do you think George Washington and the other founders would think about the state of our government and of the country today? Yeah, I, listen, George Washington in his farewell address, one of the things he worried about was partisanship and political parties overtaking um, the process and saying that they have to be quenched, otherwise they will consume. Um, so I think he would be dismayed at uh, some of the political party and partisanship of the country. But I think he would realize that this is what they thought. They thought that you had to fight for it, that you had to keep fighting for it. And that in order to continue, you have to embrace the fact that we have dissent baked in the cake of who we are. That's from the beginning, the fabric of our country. Dissent is a part of it. But you have to get to union. And what Washington managed to do was get dissent meshed with union to get something across the finish line. So I think that that's you know, how Washington might look at it. I'm sure he would not be on social media, uh, <laughs> X or Twitter. <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? I mean, in between Netflix and chilling at Mount Vernon, you know, George Washington yeah. on Twitter slash X. Uh, sending out little missives uh, the way we get now. Wouldn't that be something? Well, I know, I think I speak for everybody when I say I wish we could bring them back for some wise counsel, but the closest that we can get to that is your fantastic book. It's called To Rescue the Constitution. You guys are going to love it. It makes such a great gift for all of the patriots and history buffs and everybody else you know, so please go get it. Brett Bear, thank you so much, my friend. Thanks, Monica. Thanks for having me. Okay, guys, that is going to do it for me today. Thank you so much for joining me as always and for checking out our great sponsors. We all really appreciate that. Have a terrific end to your week and a wonderful weekend with those you love. And I will see you right back here next week. This episode of the Monica Crowley podcast was produced by Behakel Entertainment, LLC. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger 
for the ones who get it done.